Episode 49, Elizabethan England. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Last episode, I spent a bit of time on Henry VIII, who was a very important monarch. But I didn't give him a full episode. He was just shoehorned into the episode on the Reformation spreading to England. But this time, I'm giving the whole episode to one ruler, Queen Elizabeth I. I might need to eventually give Queen Elizabeth II her own episode too, but I haven't thought that far ahead yet. Why am I giving Elizabeth I her own episode? Good question. I haven't given that many people their own episode, actually. Eight so far, in fact, before Elizabeth. Whom? you may ask? All right. Alexander, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Jesus, Constantine, Charlemagne, Gutenberg, and Luther. Those people all got their own episodes. A few other episodes have been kind of about one person, including Homer and Muhammad and Columbus. But if you think about it, like that's quite the list of important people, isn't it? When you're asking about who the 10 most important people in Western history are, all of those people could be in the discussion. And so would Queen Elizabeth. She's that important. First of all, a great deal of English culture settled down into being, well, English culture. It became a much more vibrant, homogenous culture during Elizabeth's reign. It became the beginnings of the England that we know today. Also, during Elizabeth's reign, England had its own golden age. Elizabethan England was one of the high points of English history, one of those rare golden ages where there was mostly peace, there was prosperity, a flowering of culture, learning, and art. Queen Victoria later will reign over another golden age, that's 300 years after Elizabeth, but Elizabeth's was the first. And Elizabeth and her own reign were an important turning point in the history of England. I mentioned in the episode about the Reformation spreading across Northern Europe that after Henry VIII died, his first daughter, Mary, ruled for five years and tried to bring England back towards Catholicism. Mary died in November of 1558, which left her half-sister, Elizabeth, as the next in line to the throne. Elizabeth was 25 when she became queen. She inherited a country divided by religion, and a country worried about a possible religious civil war. Elizabeth moved the country back towards Protestantism, first of all, but she was conciliatory to the Catholics in general. She was able to reinstate a lot of Protestants to key positions, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishop of London, and other high-profile spots, and this pleased a lot of the Protestant lords who had friends or children that they ended up putting into these key positions. One of the trickier questions, though, that she had to navigate was Scotland. Scotland, though it had stayed Protestant, had allied itself with Catholic France against England, and Elizabeth managed to support the Scottish Protestants, and eventually she drove out the French. Part of the problem with Scotland was that Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, was the Scottish queen, but she was Catholic, even though the country was mostly Protestant. I need to point out here that this is a different Mary than Mary I, who was the Queen of England before Elizabeth. 
Mary I, who was also Catholic, is often known as Bloody Mary because of all the Protestants she killed. But in fairness, Elizabeth also kills a lot of Catholics as well. So Mary I was the Queen of England and she was Catholic. But the other Mary, who was Elizabeth's cousin, not her stepsister, was known as Mary, Queen of Scots. And she was also Catholic. I mean, if you're Mary, that's your name, and you're in the Middle Ages, hey, what's the odds? You're probably Catholic, right? Anyway, Mary, Queen of Scots, was trying to use the French influence, the Catholics from France, to support her reign in Scotland, despite the fact that most of the country was Protestant. And Elizabeth did not want this, so she used the English military to drive out the French and arrest Mary, Queen of Scots, and have her imprisoned in England. Mary was imprisoned for 18 years, moving around from castle to castle, and was eventually beheaded for conspiring to overthrow Elizabeth, which it seems likely she was actually conspiring to do. Elizabeth also had to deal with several other plots during her reign, and she was able to defuse them all. In fact, one of the key things about Elizabethan England was that it was a time of relative peace, both internally and externally. And other than some important naval battles with Spain, which we'll get to in a moment, Elizabeth had peace both within her realm and with the neighboring countries of Europe. Elizabeth consolidated royal power, and she had several important lords who were behind her. In her days, there was a parliament, but it wasn't strong enough yet to really challenge royal authority. But it did become more organized and more formalized during her reign. Even so, Elizabeth did a good job of interacting with this parliament and keeping internal peace with the lords. This level of internal and external peace was a big reason that England had a long run of prosperity under Elizabeth and why it was a golden age. One of the interesting aspects about how Elizabeth kept the internal peace of England was that she never married. She had various suitors, all of whom she eventually rejected. She also had one long love affair with a married man named Robert Dudley, but it seems as though it really was only a platonic relationship and they never became actually lovers. At one point, Dudley's first wife died by falling down some stairs mysteriously, and there was talk of it being intentional. Elizabeth apparently wanted to marry him at that point, but nearly all of the nobility objected to this, and so she never went ahead with the plan. Dudley himself later remarried, and apparently Elizabeth hated the second wife all of her life. Since Elizabeth never married, she was known as the Virgin Queen, and several of her official portraits play up this theme. It's not clear whether this was actually true or not, and there were rumors of affairs, including with Dudley, but it was never documented one way or the other. So we'll leave that one as an actual mystery. But since she never married, the nobles were mostly on her side and mostly at peace with each other during her reign. By not marrying a foreign suitor either, she managed to keep the peace with many of her European neighbors. So her reign was peaceful both internally and externally, and this brought about the prosperity. Another reason that England was prosperous was that Elizabeth substantially increased the size and the scope of the Royal Navy. Under Elizabeth, there were quite a few royal naval vessels that operated around the globe basically as pirates, raiding French and Spanish ships on the high seas and stealing the plunder that those ships were bringing back from the New World. Because of this, England was somewhat at war with Spain for the last 20 years of Elizabeth's 45-year reign, 
and most of those battles happened at sea. By far, the most famous of those battles is the English defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Spain intended to invade England, and so they sent a huge fleet of about 150 ships, including 25 huge Spanish galleons, some of the biggest warships of the day. And they also had about 18,000 soldiers aboard for the actual invasion. The main Spanish fleet was supposed to sail up the English Channel and meet with another fleet up in Belgium, but before they got there, the English fleet attacked them. The English fleet was commanded by Sir Francis Drake, who was out lawn bowling when he heard that there was a Spanish armada coming, and he supposedly said, There is plenty of time to finish the game and still beat the Spaniards. Anyway, he gathered the English fleet, which included 34 warships of different sizes and a large array of smaller armed merchant vessels, and headed out to meet the Spanish fleet. The English fleet was smaller, faster, and more maneuverable than the Spanish, but the Spanish fleet managed to maintain their battle formation the first day. That night, the Spanish fleet anchored off the coast of France, and the English, in the night, sent eight fire ships into the Armada. So these were ships that were on fire and loaded with explosives and were supposed to sail into the Spanish Armada and explode and cause chaos. Well, none of the fire ships actually damaged any Spanish ships, but the Armada was scattered and several ships ran aground and several others ran into each other and were damaged in the dark and in the confusion. The next morning and all through the next day, there was fierce fighting in what is known as the Battle of Gravelines. The English held the upper hand throughout. By the end of the day, the English, though, were out of ammunition, so they held off awaiting supply ships. And at this moment, in a fortunate turn for the Spanish, the wind changed, and so the remains of the Armada were able to escape to the north, and they eventually sailed all the way around Great Britain and returned to Spain. Of the 150 ships that sailed out, only 65 returned to Spain. A lot of the ships were lost to storms and shipwrecks on the circular voyage around Great Britain, and they were run aground on the west coast of Great Britain. In this battle, almost inconceivably, the English did not lose a single ship. Well, except for the eight fire ships, but that was intentional, so we're not counting that, right? They did have some casualties, but not nearly as many as the Spanish. The English lost a few hundred men, but the Spanish lost between ten and 20,000 men. In addition, the English captured seven Spanish warships and several dozen of the smaller ships. It was an astounding rout by the English Navy, one of their biggest and most important victories ever. Sir Francis Drake, the English commander, became even more famous, and Elizabeth herself became even more popular because of the victory. Now, while we're on the subject of Sir Francis Drake, he was already popular and famous in England, because there's another part to his story that I should mention here. It happened before the Spanish Armada, but this earlier story does contribute to Elizabeth's success. Eleven years before the Spanish Armada, Drake was part of an English expedition to South America, whose goal was basically to capture Spanish and Portuguese ships and their cargo. So, yeah, he was a pirate. Hoist the colors! In 1577, Drake was commissioned by Elizabeth's government to sail to South America and basically raid, pillage, and plunder his Weasley Black guts out. He successfully raided some Spanish settlements in what's now Argentina. 
Drake's flagship was named the Golden Hind, which does not mean golden behind. It's an older English name for a female deer. There's a full-sized replica of the Golden Hind in London today, anchored somewhere on the Thames. Anyway, after some raiding and capturing some Spanish vessels' cargoes, he and the rest of his expedition sailed on around South America, sailing south and down into the Straits of Magellan. He was the first Englishman to sail through the Straits of Magellan and the first Englishman to see the Pacific Ocean. On his way up the far coast, the west coast of South America, Drake captured a Spanish galleon that had more than $450 million worth of gold and silver on board. He managed to get all this booty onto his two ships. He captured more Spanish ships as he sailed up the coast. He sailed up the west coast of the Americas, getting as far north as San Francisco. There's actually a bay there around San Francisco today called Drake's Bay, where he apparently anchored for a few days. From there, he sailed west across the Pacific to the East Indies. He did some more pirate things, and then he sailed across the Indian Ocean. He sailed around Africa and back up to England. He returned in 1580, almost three years after he left. Everyone was surprised to see him again. A few months after his return, he was knighted by Elizabeth. He was England's first real naval hero, though not her last. And interestingly enough, part of the reason for the English war with Spain, and eventually the Spanish Armada, was Drake's voyage. Spain considered the entire Pacific Ocean their private territory since they had discovered it. Spain started colonizing the south part of South America, especially the Straits of Magellan, to prevent other countries from venturing into the Pacific. Spain was infuriated by Drake's intrusion into their private ocean, and it led to the war, eventually to Drake himself defeating the Spanish Armada after he finished his bowling game. So in a couple ways, Drake was instrumental in the English Navy taking over the role of biggest navy in the world from the Spanish. And in a sense, the defeat of the Armada by the Royal Navy is the beginning of the end of the Spanish Empire and the beginning of the beginning of the British Empire. So I mentioned this last episode, but the Royal Navy and the British Empire is going to be a big deal for the next 400 years. Since the point of this podcast is to talk about how events of history influenced the modern world, well, the British Empire left a big mark on the modern world, and that really started to be a thing under Queen Elizabeth. The Elizabethan age was the beginning of England, and then later Great Britain, becoming a major world power. Beside the Royal Navy, the English merchant fleet grew tremendously during Elizabeth's reign as well. Great Britain itself is pretty small and doesn't really have an enormous amount of natural resources in and of itself. So England became a seafaring trading powerhouse, kind of like Venice did after the fall of Rome. Elizabeth encouraged this and sanctioned many of the English lords creating trading companies. One of these trading companies, formed in 1600 during Elizabeth's reign, was called the East India Company, later known as the East India Trading Company. We will have a run-in with them in future episodes, but that company became as important as the Royal Navy in extending British power across the globe. So, in addition to talking about Sir Francis Drake, we also need to mention Sir Francis Bacon. Bacon was an English nobleman 
who held various positions in Elizabeth's government and later King James's government after Elizabeth. But mostly, Bacon is remembered for a philosophical book he wrote called Novum Organum, in which he spelled out the ideas of empiricism and the empirical method. Empiricism is the idea that knowledge in general, and science in particular, should be founded on the process of collecting and analyzing the evidence of experiments, rather than just on rational conjecture. Empirical evidence, then, is the collection of data from experiments, and Bacon's book advocates this. We've already mentioned that Galileo and Copernicus did this with the stars, but Bacon applied the idea to all areas of learning, and he spelled out in his book a philosophy that explains what Galileo and Copernicus were doing. They were collecting evidence and then drawing conclusions based on all the evidence collected. Bacon's work was incredibly influential in the development of the scientific method, which I plan to talk about at some point in its own episode. Along with Galileo, Bacon was sort of the father of this approach. Thomas Jefferson later said that Bacon, Locke, and Newton were the most important influences in developing science and the scientific method. Besides Sir Francis Bacon, science of all sorts was encouraged, and the famous Royal Society, which was basically a club for science and scientists, was formed during Elizabeth's reign. And besides science being encouraged, the arts also developed. In fact, the Elizabethan era was kind of the high renaissance of England. There was a boom in grand architecture brought in by the prosperity and peace of the era. Painting and music were also well supported, so there was a boom of music, musicians, and painting, mostly the painting of portraits. But the big boom was in literature, most specifically in poetry and in the theater. There was a thriving theater scene in London, with competing theaters and theater companies producing elaborate, well-crafted, and well-written plays. Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson both would be remembered as some of the most important English authors and playwrights ever, except for the problem that they were overshadowed by this one guy who, like Elizabeth, is important enough to warrant his own episode. We'll get back to him. To summarize Elizabeth's episode, though, I should mention that what we now know as England and English culture was basically established and then started to settle in during Elizabeth's reign. There was a stable monarchy, an effective government, and that government was passed on peacefully to the next monarch, even though James wasn't directly one of Elizabeth's descendants. Under Elizabeth, the parliamentary system was developed, and it actually eventually came to help balance the power of the monarchy. Elizabeth's long, peaceful, and prosperous reign provided England with a chance to become, well, English. Before that, it was much more of a mix of Saxon, Celtic, French, other cultures. But by the end of Elizabeth's reign, England was English. The language of English was stabilized too and started to become what we speak today, at least what we speak in this particular podcast in this particular country. And all of that was also helped along by the impressive work of one particular playwright from a small town in England called Stratford-upon-Avon. Before I mention him, though, I want to point out that we are almost at the end. The end of the Middle Ages, anyway. That is, of course, kind of arbitrary because the Middle Ages doesn't really have a clear end point like the ancient world did. 
We can say the ancient world ended at the fall of the Roman Empire in September of 476 AD. We talked about that way back in episode 26. But the Middle Ages doesn't end quite as dramatically. It just kind of naturally transitions into the modern era. But in any case, we do have to end it somewhere. So I'm going to end it with the next episode, which, by the way, will be episode 50, which is some kind of something, I think, anyway. After that, we're going to do an episode summarizing all of the Middle Ages, and then we're going to turn our attention to the modern world by looking at the New World and looking at the Enlightenment. But before we get to all that, we need to conclude the Middle Ages with the highest high point of the English Renaissance. Next episode, we'll take a look at the rather mysterious and incredibly important author of some of the most famous works in the history of the English language, William Shakespeare.